0: When you listen to a lot of thought leaders within non-monogamy, I feel like they tend to lean on logic. And kind of like a layman's version of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that has a place, but I don't feel like it's an end-all, be-all. And again, there might be cultural misogyny happening because let's face it, like a little piece of misogyny is woman, emotional, bad. Man, logical, good. And that just kind of feeds in. Like with even if we're a woman, we have to so you go, oh, I'm being logical, so therefore I'm being superior. I'm being mm-hmm. more
1: evolved. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to be answering some questions from our patrons, and we're doing that with a very special guest, Kate Lurie. Kate Laurie is an LMFT, a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamy, kink, LGBTQ relationships, and sex worker communities, and is the author of Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. She also co-hosts her own sex-positive podcast, Open Deeply, along with another friend of ours, Sunny Megatron. So, Kate, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: So, Kate, it's always so exciting to welcome another non-monogamy resource onto the scene. So can you tell us a little bit more specifically about your book?
0: Well, you know, one thing that I noticed was that although, you know, we have amazing books like The Ethical Slut and Opening Up that are out there, a lot of my clients would come in and they had already read those books. My my clients tend to be incredibly bright and articulate and well-spoken, and, and they'd be like a month deep into their non-monogamous relationship and they felt lost. And so I wrote the book This book is a reflection of everything that I have over the 20 years of being a therapist, but it's also a reflection of some of the most common struggles I see in and out of private practice. Another thing that I notice a lot with the books that are already out there is that they don't have, in my opinion, enough vignettes. And the reason I think that that's important is because a lot of client, you know, clients, when they come in, I'll express an idea and they have the scrunchy face and then I'll give them a vignette and they're like, oh, right. And so I tried to pepper it with vignettes all the way through. Another thing that I've noticed is that until very recently, couples therapy and trauma therapy run parallel with not a lot of Venn diagram crossover. Hmm. And I'm, I'm both of those things. So in the book, I very much interweave The two where I talk about, like, if you're getting triggered, this is how you can ground yourself and your partner. And my communication model, Epic, interweaves, grounding skills, et cetera, that come from trauma therapy with couples therapy, you know, which is more, you know, like inspired by Imago dialogue, like empathy, validating. And on the back end, I tack on some Buddhist thought in terms of compassion. And that's, you know, my Epic communication model is that's what uh, is interwoven in it. So those are the few things. My book talks covers a lot of territory that just gives you a few little tasting spoons.
2: Well, we're always a fan of sprinkling in little bits of Buddhism wherever we can, just <laughs> yeah. as like a delightful little like chocolate sauce on top of the sundae. <laughs> so that's very exciting. No, I'm really excited to hear about, well, first of all, just that observation about how so much trauma therapy and couples therapy do run in parallel and what I've definitely found kind of working on both sides of those things is, yeah, like both schools of thought will kind of acknowledge the other, you know, like trauma therapists will acknowledge like, oh yeah, working on your relationships could be helpful here. And in couples therapy, they'll acknowledge like, sure, there may be some trauma that's informing some of this. You should probably work on that. But it feels like there are so few models that actually want to bring those things together. And I feel like it's just so, so, so important in this kind of work.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, very unfortunate because very, you know, soon into doing couples work, I noticed that the biggest thing that is a block between two people is unresolved trauma. And so one Mm. thing that I realized that where two people function at their worst is what I call it, the double trigger moment where both of them are triggering the other person simultaneously, and then it spirals. And so a lot of Mm. times I do EMDR. Well, like, when do I find out what each person's when, when the double trigger happens, I'll bridge back to find out what it bridges back to, and then I'll do EMDR in different sessions, and I've been able to save marriages that way.
3: Wow. Yeah. This is potentially a big question, but your subtitle is A Guide to Building Conscious, Compassionate, Open Relationships. So what does that look like to you? What does that mean exactly?
0: Well, let's just look at the word Conscious. So many people are not having conscious, compassionate relationships, regardless of their relationship model. They're having unconscious, reactive relationships where they're not in they they're not aware of their triggers, or not deeply enough. And especially once the relationship gets uh, deep, all these unresolved attachment injuries start to light up in the relationship. So part of having a you know a conscious passionate relationship is first being, you know, aware of your triggers, learning how to ground each other and yourself, you know, and having empathy and validation and also cooling your jets. A lot of times within non-monogamy, people get excited and they just, they want to go, they go to one party and they haven't processed it through before they're going to the next party. And now they're just layering unresolved emotional material. So sometimes it's cooling your jets and making sure that you've process through things before you do the next thing. You know, th- yeah. these are a few ex- examples. I could speak on this forever.
1: <laughs> so,
2: yeah, speaking of <laughs> giving great. vignettes, yeah. I'm wondering if you could give some examples or explanation or a vignette around what an attachment injury is for our listeners.
0: Okay, so an attachment injury might be, you know, and it can be smaller or larger. Attachment injury might or somebody might have a series of attachment injuries where their their dad left when they were a little kid without a note and then their you know their their partner neglected them or ignored them and you know they had some brutal breakups where the person left without explaining themselves cuz let's face it people are patterned a lot of times until you really become a conscious person and you heal from a lot of stuff it's really hard to break our patterns we go through a phase where we're aware of our patterns but people can be in that state for a couple of decades before they are actually able to stop the pattern, right? And so a lot of times it's not one attachment injury, it's a series that gets lighted, lit up in the relationship. You know, that's one example
1: of right, an attachment kind of injury. Build on each other, kind of compounding layers on layers on layers that it makes it harder to, to kind of untangle it all to, to start healing it.
0: Yeah, I mean one thing that I would like to reference the last I don't I can't remember which of the last two episodes it was the last two episodes that you guys had where you talked about it had part 1 and 2 and it talked about relationship issues
3: and relationship patterns. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, and I think there was a part where you went into five different relationship types mm-hmm. like the alpha i think was one blah blah, blah. The and i was listening yeah. to that and i was thinking there's a lot of relationships that have all five all at once yeah you yeah. know For that's, sure. one, that's yeah. one thing i was thinking and the other thing that i was thinking is you know a lot of people talk about you know like say attachment styles or they will talk about codependency yeah Etc. But a lot of therapists, again, therapists have a tendency to like stay in their lane almost to a, a fault, and I I think it's to the point of being almost unethical not to weave in the cultural level. Like a lot of times, maybe there is some misogyny that's either internalized or playing out in the relationship. A lot of women that are overgivers, it's because they've been conditioned you know, to play that role. And a lot of men, if they're highly in their man box are playing Mm -hmm. out a certain role and they date each other, you know, that whole dynamic needs to be out. I'll just, without being too long-winded, I'll just say with some of those women that fall into that category, instead of looking at it through the codependency lens, I'll talk to them about it through that lens. And I've had women, like in a few weeks, break up with a, a toxic relationship and choose a kind relationship and change that very quickly. And I think it's worth saying because a lot of times people say that the, that the overgiver, the codependent in the relationship is just as quote unquote mm. sick as mm-hmm. the, and, and I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's true. It's like sometimes you just need awareness of cultural programming.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And something that I think comes up a lot on our show too, is just that we can't just say, oh, I acknowledge there's a cultural thing and then it doesn't apply to me anymore, but it's because yeah, it's no. the water we <laughs> swim in, right? It's it's Whether we feel like we're part of that culture or not, it still affects us. And so that is that is so important to acknowledge and be aware of.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering about, because you talked about, I've definitely noticed the same thing that I do think there's a lot of resources out there specifically for non-monogamy and polyamory and even swinging that offer a lot of good theory, right? And people get really excited about the theory, people get really excited about the ideas, people get really excited about the philosophy. And then it's so common to see people really stumble out the gate or get really caught unawares by something they weren't expecting or having a big trigger or a big trauma response or things like that. And so, you know, over time, especially as I've worked with clients, you know, there's so many things where I realize, okay, yeah, there's a certain amount of the theory and the philosophy that's great and that's solid and and is good practice. But also so much of this comes down to our own personal baggage, injuries, patterns, things like that. And so I was wondering when you were writing your book, you know, how you dealt with that. Was it a challenge? Because I do feel like there's so much of this can be so personal to each person of what it is that they have to deal with. I was just kind of wondering how you tackled that in your writing process.
0: I, I think I tackled that in a lot of different places. So again, I'll just give you some taster spoons. One thing I think, this is just my belief that when you listen to a lot of thought leaders within non-monogamy, I feel like they tend to lean on logic and kind of like a layman's version of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that has a place, but I don't feel like it's an end-all be-all. And again, there might be some cultural... A little bit of cultural misogyny happening, because let's face it, like a little piece of misogyny is woman, emotional, bad man, logical, good. And that just kind of feeds in. like with even if we're a woman, we have to so you go, oh, I'm being logical. So therefore, I'm being superior. I'm being mm-hmm. more evolved. And one thing that I try and, and do is is express to people that at least this is my belief that your true compass is your your thoughts your emotions, and your body sensations working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. And as soon as you start to disregard any of those three, your little ship is heading towards the rocks in some way, in my opinion. You know, So that's one thing that I talk about, because if you're able to do that, you'll be able to, again, be more conscious rather than reactive, and you'll be able to make more choices for yourself and have more agency for yourself. You know, another thing is, you know, the, the epic communication model. Again, it's like, I think a key thing is staying grounded. You know, Bruce Lee talks about this. Like when you learn about karate, they'll talk about the way that you win in, if you're in a fight is to knock your partner off center, right? So the more you can stay centered, which in, I just explained one method to stay centered the more you can have agency in any relationship. Not to say that everybody is adversarial. And since we're talking about that, another thing I've noticed in my private practice is that people come in and almost any couple, because that's how they come in. They don't come in as triads or quads, regardless of what's going on at home. They come in and they are immediately what I call lawyering up Hmm. and trying to, they come in with their, like their invisible paralegal is there with this big stack of evidence and they're trying to win. You know, and if you read uh, a book like Wired for Love, Stan Stan Taken says, you know, this is kind of how we've been wired and and the anxious person is the one who didn't get eaten by the bear. And so we tend to, a lot of us are anxious. And if you're anxious and in a relationship, you're scanning for what's wrong. And that's not Wired for Love, right? So part of this is breaking that down and starting to build a practice of tracking your body, having a gratitude pr- practice with your partners, and, and having a gratitude practice from a grounded, centered place that's connected to the body. Again, this will help you have agency and help you be more compassionate.
2: I'm wondering, over the course of your time working with this particular population, are there any cultural shifts that you've noticed as far as the ways people are practicing non-monogamy, what people are struggling with, what people are focusing on? Have you seen that shift over time?
0: Well, I'll just say, actually, regard, I'll first say, regardless of relationship model, I've noticed that like millennials on down are doing better. Like, especially in male, female relationships, you'll see men stepping away from the man box, women having more agency, some of the gender norms breaking down. And that gives space for, for love. Hmm. You know, it's like all the gender norms. Get in the way of love in a lot of ways. I, mean, I can hear some people screaming out there, you know, about that. But th- that's <laughs> right. that's that's my my belief. So I see the younger generations—they're breaking down rigidity where they find it, whether it's gender norms, relationship norms—and and from that place of there's more flexibility. And the flexible animal is the animal that survives. The flexible human is the one that's happier and more well-adjusted so that's one thing that i'm noticing. you know i let's see. so what else am i noticing? i'll have to say the the clients that come to me tend to be out of the box thinkers, so i don't know if i can go by my practice because older people are more they're not the normal older person that comes to me. right? but when i think about when i step away from my practice and i think about my non-monogamous journey that started out back in 2003 in the swing community there was a lot of benefits to the swing community i was working in a clinic it was high stress and and being in that environment with the no, the the social norm of no drama was exactly what i needed at that at that point but it is a more rigid community
1: hmm.
0: you know and that community i don't know what the demographic is now but it it, it seems like the swingers that i know, maybe it's cuz of my age they're they're older now and it does seem to be more rigid. And at the end of the day, I just I just feel, I, I, I know one thing that I'd say, that as relationship anarchy gains a foothold, I think for a lot of us, maybe at first, that seemed, it was hard for us to wrap our head around. But now that we're slowly starting to see, oh, we can just let go of social norms and really look at any given relationship and just decide piecemeal what we want it to be and it can change over time and if we become friends for a while that doesn't mean we might become love we might become lovers later on like everything could be fluid and and shift over time and that leads to more happiness and again you see that with younger generations
2: hmm the kids well that's are nice to hear us. from your perspective i feel like millennials i feel like we've created rigidity in other areas personally like <laughs> Like, I feel like, um, and again, I mean, again, this is like self-selection, right? Because of like the communities I tend to hang out in. Like, I tend to see people, I think the thing we we harp on a lot in this show is people's obsession with boundaries. And we're obsessed with boundaries too, because it's like fantastic, right? You know, once you actually have a sense of how that actually fits into your life. But I see rigidity around sometimes what I think is what we've been calling being hyper-boundaried right? You know, being a little bit, well, it has to be this way. Or sometimes it's like, it has to be relationship anarchist. You know, I I do think it's like 100% valid what you're saying, especially I think compared to older generations. But I do think it's like my perspective is I feel like we've shifted the rigidity to other places.
0: Well, I I will have to. So now that you're saying that one thing that I will say is that it's interesting because, you know, like back in 2003, I didn't even know about the ethical slut. You know, even though it was out, right? I had to like right. learn everything the hard way. And when I first got into it, everybody who is non-monogamous, they they were like, "We are the golden chalice. We are the secret to everything." <laughs> <course>. Blah blah. <laughs> and as yeah. things have evolved, I see this camp of non-monogamous folks that are just as rigid hmm. as yeah. as as monogamous people. You know, they they complain about monogamous people being rigid, but there's camps of non-monogamous people that are are so rigid. They're just sure. like, it's my way. And if you're not doing it this way, you're doing it the wrong way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we've had some folks talk to us about feeling hesitant to use the terms non-monogamy or use the term polyamory, because I think in certain circles that's it's coming to be associated with a certain type of dogma. Right. Yeah. Which is like understandable. Like I totally get it. I, I could wax poetic about kind of bigger cultural trauma or microculture trauma around these kind of things. But but I do think that we need to move on to start talking about some of our listener questions. Does everybody feel ready for that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, let's let's do do it. it. It's like a fun little panel discussion here. It's great. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Here we go. Okay,
3: I'm going to read this first question that we have. So this is from one of our patrons. Do you have any advice for working through the embodied anxiety and fear response that takes over every time my partner tells me about a new potential romantic connection? Uh, We're doing great and have been together dating others for three years. I want to work on softening this response while still honoring my feelings. Any experience with this?
0: So, the first thing I'd say is, you know, developing a relationship with your body. But let's note if you, whatever you track in your body tends to get bigger. So, you have to be careful about this. If you have, if you're suffering from panic attacks and you start to focus on your heart, guess what? Now you're having a bigger panic attack. Right. So you have to be a little bit careful with this. But if you start to track your body, I think this is an important first step of really getting to know what's going on with you. One thing that you can do as a first exercise to find out, like to really understand, is to get in touch with what is happening in that moment that you're anxious. You know, like say you're at the play party and your partner's paying attention to someone else all night and you're just getting lit up with all these feelings. Later on, when you're at home and you're in a safer, grounded place, getting in touch with that feeling, noticing what is happening in your body, noticing when it felt the worst at the party, noticing how you felt about yourself, like, I'm feeling ignored, I'm feeling helpless. And once you're connected to all all that, bridge back to the first or worst memory that pops up. Like, maybe it's a, a memory of... Your parents driving off at the gas station, leaving you behind because they're howling, laughing at something that your sibling said, and they always laughed. They always like liked her better in your opinion. So, and you may have a whole bunch of traumas related to that. So that may be your part in it. You might need to, you know, get some therapy on that, what have you. And once you realize that that target, you can actually notice it, and then do more grounding exercises around it. You might, if you're at the party, you might have to like go to the bathroom, do some deep breathing, go for a walk or call your partner out. And if he's a benevolent, kind partner, like talk about it, that sort of thing, whatever you need to do to get grounded. But also sometimes, especially if a lot of times when people have anxiety like that, they, they oftentimes think they're completely to blame. They think that they're, you know, bad at polyamory or whatever, and I'd encourage you not to just jump to this idea that one person is completely at fault and go and ask yourself, is there anything that, is there any responsibility that my partner has? Maybe they were just completely ignoring you all that, all that night. Maybe they were being a little inconsiderate. And then if that's true, like having a conversation with them about that and just kind of noticing who, you know, and by doing that, now you're managing your anxiety in two different directions, their responsibility and your own responsibility and, and having, you know, having that, that positive work in, in both of those camps.
1: Yeah. I think that what you touched on there about in that, in that second part of, you know, why might I actually be upset about this? And that doesn't just have to be with their behavior right then, but say it's just my partner expressed, oh, you know, I, As a coworker or a friend that I might go on a date with or or I'm interested in. Is there either some history there of, well, in the past, they've gotten really into someone new and I have felt a little bit left out. Maybe there's something there that we could take some proactive steps together to try to say, okay, how can we make sure that that feels better this time? you know, do some little experiments, try some things like that, as well as it could be baggage from a past relationship. It could be, I've seen this happen to a friend of mine, or this happened in a past relationship, and I'm worried you're going to do this to me, even if I don't have experience of you doing that, you know, both are absolutely possible. But asking that question of, is there something for, for both of you, you know, from both sides that you're able to do to make this a little bit easier? Is there something they could be doing to help assuage some of those fears or establish a little more confidence in them so that you have less of that fear while also doing that self-examination and and really approaching it from both sides. Uh, One thing I wanted to add to that is something that Dedeker tells me to do a lot when I'm feeling kind of physically bad in some way is to also uh, look at, is there some part of your body that feels good or at least okay? Maybe it's like your calf on your left leg feels fine. Maybe the rest of you feels like it's on fire and freaking out, but like, just try to find something that's grounding that is okay in your body. And I I have found that to be helpful as that, you know, how can I focus on my body without just focusing on all the problems and maybe exacerbating those and making them worse?
0: Yeah. Can I pipe in? So with that, that is excellent advice. And, you know, if you get trained under the trauma resiliency model, that's what they train you to do. The, the only thing that I'd add is if somebody has a really horrible trauma history, you know, that like with with war veterans, what trauma research found out is if, if you um, go into the body, sometimes that's dysregulating for someone with a massive trauma history. What you can do to ground your body, if that's you, is instead think about positive resources, like, you know, your kitty that makes you smile or, you know, like, whatever. By thinking of a positive resource, it has the same outcome of grounding the the body, if focusing directly on your body actually hijacks you. But otherwise, yeah, absolutely.
3: I just think, and this isn't always the case, especially in specific, like, very heightened trauma responses, but... If you find that there you're having a shitty day, for example, often we tend to perpetuate that feeling internally just by continuing to ruminate over it and continuing it over and over again. And I think that, yeah, all of the stuff that the two of you have been talking about, trying to find ways to ground yourself, trying to find your ways of breaking that cycle of continuing to, you know, perpetuate that feeling that you're having. I mean, for instance, today, like my hot water has been off for five days and I haven't had a hot shower in five days. And I woke up this morning really fucking angry about it. <laughs> you know, I I got into this session of recording and I started talking to Jason Dedeker, and just switching that mode in my head. I was able to ground and able to sort of calm myself down. And it was simply just by like turning my direction elsewhere turning my internal compass in a different direction and it really did help like i'm that that mood that embodied mood and feeling left me and so that's sometimes easier said than done but it is something to think about that that at times we are in control of our abilities to change the outcome of how we're feeling
1: i like that I just wanted to throw in one other thing that occurred to me is when talking about also your partner, what, what might they be doing to contribute to this doesn't even have to be that they're doing something wrong, you know, or that they are being negligent or hurtful or something. It could also be that if they have an association with you reacting poorly to this, they might then be Presenting Mm, that information to you totally (laughs) with that expectation that kind of creates this feedback loop. It's that, you know, that difference between, Hey, so there's this, you know, person that I've been talking to. I'm kind of interested in maybe dating versus, Hey, so, okay, so there's this person that. Like, I I think I might be interested in and right, like the delivery of it is I feel more nervous even just pretending to give this news. And so that can also create a little bit of this feedback loop that, again, both of you working together might be able to try some things to to rewrite that script and change some of that, because that might just be perpetuating the problem that neither of you wants to be having.
0: Right. Yeah. With with that, when I see that stuff play out in my private practice. Usually, okay, so the person that's being so hesitant, like their partner is about to just jump on their juggler or something, uh-huh. you know, usually that has a long history that goes way back even before the relationship began. And again, it's like, hmm. you know, they're telling themselves a story that they can't be honest without something bad happening. And yeah. that's, that's a lot of times some, they have some work to do around that, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. You know? Uh, okay, let's let's move on to our next question here. This next one is also from a patron. What's the biggest pro and con for each of you when it comes to being publicly out as polyamorous or non-monogamous, we could say? Boy, oh boy. Well, so I guess each one, of Jace. us, what's your biggest pro? And <laughs> yeah, you <the> sorry. <laughs> Gosh. I would say biggest pro is just that. I don't have to take on the mental load of trying to remember who knows this or not and instead it's just kind of I'm not constantly broadcasting it, you know, at work or whatever, but if it comes up it's I mean that's if you google me, you'll find that out about me. So it's not like something I have to kind of try to keep tabs on. So I'd say it's more that freeing me up from that mental extra work of having to keep track of that. I would say the con is I mean, especially in, you know, I guess all of our cases of being very publicly searchably out is just that someone could find that out about me and make all their own assumptions and things without ever having had talked to me about it. So I'd say that's that's maybe the biggest con would be, you know, I'm thinking of like, I just started dating someone and their mom Googles me and now is very upset about who they think that I am or something like that. Right. Which literally happened. (laughs) That did happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right, who's next?
2: I, I'll go next. I would say, yeah, I will definitely second that there's a certain amount of simplicity in, like Jay said, not having to do the mental gymnastics of figuring out who knows, who doesn't, who have I, who knows about this partner, who knows about that partner. I talked about this a few episodes ago in going through a really big breakup. It was really nice to already be out with most of my family, my friends, the people that I loved. So that I didn't have to necessarily keep that pain to myself, which a lot of people have to do. Unfortunately, you know, that like I've just had a huge breakup and I still need to go to work and pretend like everything's fine, or I need to go be around my mom and pretend that everything's fine. Like I was so grateful that I could go visit my mom on a visit that Jace is even with me, you know, on that same trip. And I can still be crying to my mom about this particular breakup and it's okay and getting that support. So I think that's been great. I think. I don't know if this is the biggest con, but maybe one of the big ones is just constantly having to deal with other people's confusion all the time. You know, the flip (laughs) side of that coin with my family is they're, they know and they're like, oh, okay. But always just so confused about how, how do I talk to you about this? How do I ask you about this? I don't know, you know, I, I think I've reached a place in my life where I've gotten pretty good at filtering out the people close or distant or otherwise who are actively what do I want to say, like acrimonious or antagonistic toward me about non-monogamy. I usually just don't give those people the time of day. But I would say kind of the weird in-between space is hard. And especially since now doing this podcast and then working with clients and basically spending all day, every working day talking about non-monogamy all the time means that then in my normal day-to-day life, I don't want to answer people's questions about this anymore. (laughs) Like I don't want to talk about this anymore. Even if they're nice questions, even if they're Coming from a good place, I'm just like, oh my god, I, I just I can't. I've reached my my capacity for this. So that's for me. What about for you, Kate?
0: Um, let's see. I would say some of the the negatives are. So I, I'm going to do a side tangent for a second. Have you ever gone to Universal studi- Studios and gotten the Fast Pass so you can go to the front of the line? Mm-hmm. And you know, understand. Oh, sure. sure, sure. Uh, okay. So some people, when I'm starting to talk to them on a dating app, it's like they think that I'm the Fast Pass that's going to get yeah, them to okay. the, to the, you know, to the group sex. That's going to get them to oh, the cool yeah. party that they're right, going to be able right. to buy that, that they're going to be able to, to, instead of joining me, like, like, I want to get to know you for you. They're kind of coming from a place of what can this woman do for me? You mm-hmm. know, sometimes, you know, and, and I have to like sort those and kind of the same thing. It's uh in the same vein. Sometimes people will, or very often tell a story about myself or tell a story about who I am and what the relationship's going to be like, like they already have it in their head, what it's going to be like to date me. And Mm. 99.9% of the time they're wrong. (laughs) And I have to like (laughs) take that down and build something up. Um, I think some of the, the positive things are, and this is just my experience. I know for some people, as they have come out, they've had a lot of pain, but For me, I started coming out slowly way back in 2003, 2004, and it's been the slow process. Last person I came out to was just last December, and it's all been a good process. And the more I've been able to come out, the more I just feel happy in my own skin and more empowered and just able to find my truth more and more, the more I'm able to blossom. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about non-monogamy in general. Like a lot of times they, people become non-monogamous and there's just this openness to it inherently. And all of a sudden they, they're taking the art class that they've been putting off and they have more friends. They start to blossom in all these ways. They're completely unrelated to non-monogamy. So I think that's
2: part of the, the joy of it. I love that. That's beautiful. You're kind of a special situation.
3: Yeah, I I would say that, well, I'm not in a non-monogamous relationship anymore, that when I was, there was a sense of, like, authenticity of self and... Also, autonomy that I hadn't felt in relationship prior to that, prior to really exploring non-monogamy, and it felt really, really good. And also, I love, even even now, there, especially in a place like Los Angeles, and I'm assuming also a place like Seattle, I will be at a restaurant and hear like somebody talking about non-monogamy next to me. Or, you know, I work at a restaurant and so I hear little conversations, or I have people come up to me and they're like, are you that podcast person? Because I have a very (laughs) distinct voice and I'm like, yeah. And then they'll say, thank you for the work you're doing. And that's really cool. Just I have found, especially recently, it's super prevalent and it is becoming more prevalent. I think these spaces, being non-monogamous, you know, figuring out that you can be descriptive about your relationships as opposed to prescriptive and stuff like that. All of those things are really exciting. And I think even... If you have delved in this world at all and it has been a good place for you and it has been for me, then I think, yeah, it's just great to kind of see where we're headed and where the whole movement, I guess, is going. In terms of cons, I mean, initially, yeah, it was not great family-wise, I think. I think, yeah, my my mom was very, it just didn't really get it and questioned, I think, legitimacy of relationships and things like that and constantly had a narrative of the well the thing that i think a real relationship is is between two people and that's it as opposed to the idea that other uh, models could also be valid and acceptable um but yeah i I haven't found that to be the case much anymore as in that you know family or friends or whatever are Not understanding, I think people have really come around, and part of that just comes with the privilege of being on a podcast about this for the last million years. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, with that first part of what you were saying about it kind of getting bigger, I I was I was having a conversation with my friend Lenora Claire, and she's many things, but one thing she is is you know a casting agent, and she's Mm -hmm. like, "Kate, just so you know." Everything's about to just explode. Oh, give us like, maybe, yes. She, she's <laughs> like everybody who's reaching out to me about a mm. show. It's all about polyamory. It's wow. just polyamory, and she's like, "This we'll call this is the four of us to <laughs> yeah.
2: consult or be in it we, or we've whatever." We've done some consulting gigs for now, yeah, on shows like, and have had more interest in people reaching out for consulting, which I hope That's is a really good cool. sign that there's maybe more people who are wanting to write creative content where it's not just, I'm just going to do it based on what I think polyamory is like, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to try to talk to folks who actually experience this. So
3: more of that would be good. Absolutely. So before we move on to our next questions, we are going to take a quick break to talk about some of the ways that you can support our show. Uh, These sponsors really help us out. If you are interested in any of them, go check them out because it directly supports our show and we can keep bringing it to you for free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
2: to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we are back and we're going to move on to the next listener question. Do you have any tips for navigating the quote, big city, small town polycule aspect, where everyone seems to be one or two degrees of separation? The, oh, that's my partner's girlfriend's wife's Comet's X phenomenon. For an example, my anchor <laughs> partner went on a couple dates with someone recently. They didn't click, but now she's dating his metamore, and so on. Uh, I will just say right out the gate, this is definitely very much a thing that I have experienced that as yes. the results <laughs> of the non-monogamous dating community, while it is generally getting larger as non-monogamy goes more mainstream, still a pretty small dating pool and that can result in a lot of to put it politely, cross-pollination. Did you mean to make a pun there? Was it a pun?
1: Well, cross-pollination. Oh,
2: I totally (laughs) meant that. Thank you for pointing (laughs) it out to me.
1: Cute. I mean, can I just share a story first? This isn't helpful at all, but I, I had this experience where I went on... Well, okay, let me give the context first we were in the middle of a very stressful time that the three of us, you know, Dedeker, Emily, and I, mm. um, having to do with uh, a now ex of Dedeker's, who was and mine, and and of Emily's, yeah, it's just a real stressful, high conflict situation, just real bad feelings all around, and that had kind of just been wrapping up, and we were moving on with our lives, and I went on a date with someone new that I met online, and right away the the sort of the whole, you know, oh, who do you know? Who do you know? Kind of, how are we connected in this small polyamory world? And it was that she, for a little while, had dated that guy. And for me, for me at the time, (laughs) yeah, just those emotions were still so raw and I still had so much hurt about it and so much stress about it that I just like felt sick just physically, you know, instantly. And, and, you know, we were polite and, and talked about it and I kind of, in a very polite way, expressed some of my concerns about him and, and just sort of tried to explain some of my experience with that relationship. And they were not still dating, so I was like, okay, cool. But I just was like, I can't I can't date this person. That that, that crossover is just too, too upsetting, too much for me. And we ended up kind of staying in touch later. And then uh, maybe a year or two after that, ended up becoming quite good friends and had a good sort of friends with benefits relationship for a while. But... At first, I just couldn't because it was just too much of that that overlap with some painful experiences, so I just want to say I relate to this story and that absolutely happens
0: yeah absolutely and and I wonder the person asking this are they i wonder if they are asking what do you do with um potential drama that crops up or what do you do in terms of wanting more partners but only having this small pool i wonder kind of what was Hmm. the the question within the question a little bit but um i will i will have to say uh i would encourage people to create a network where everybody is dating uh kind people you know and i i think within non-monogamy a lot of times people um you know our our love language tends to be carefree fun freedom and adventure and so if there's anything this is a sweeping generalization. If there's anything that pisses us off, it's something that feels like the opposite of freedom. Like if anybody's being controlling or if it feels like, you know, somebody is asserting veto power, like that triggers the bejesus out of a lot of us, you know, mm-hmm. because it's the opposite of our love language. With that said though, I mean, it's like if your partner chooses a partner, then that now that's your metamor and this is a really toxic person, Like they're getting the benefit of maybe great sex, but you're getting maybe no benefit. Like you are getting the secondhand fumes of this toxic person and none of the benefit. And so I I really think that within non-monogamy, we do kind of have an ethical, uh, uh, how should I say that ethically, we really should try and choose kind partners because they will impact our other partners. You know, and if you need to go outside of poly and, and date a newbie or whatever you need to do in order to find somebody of this kind, I, I think that should lead.
2: Mm, yeah, very well said. I, I think that it's interesting you talk about the stuff that really tends to trigger the non-monogamous vote because I think one of those, and I think this we see this kind of question come up all the time in our patron groups, but when it's like, oh my God, my partner is suddenly pursuing my best friend. Or they're pursuing an ex of mine or they're pursuing like they're pursuing someone who's a little too close to home for me. And I'm having all these big feelings coming up about it, but I feel like I can do nothing about it, you know, because I do think that as soon as you start to suggest, well, maybe you need to have a conversation about that or talk to your partner about that. People are like, oh, are you saying that they should control who I get to date or not date or they get to choose for me? And like nobody's saying that. But I do think that there is, you know... I think there's just something about just acknowledging the impacts that may happen if you choose to date a particular person who's maybe very closely connected to your partner as their best friend or their ex or whatever. Um, It doesn't mean that by default, they're off limits, unless that's something maybe your partner's been very clear with you of like, hey, I can't really handle this. But I, I do think that what I've seen is people just really appreciate knowing like, okay, you're at least thinking about the fact that if you chose to sleep with my best friend, there could be an impact there even if I'm okay with it, even if I'm not completely triggered by it, but at least you're aware that, oh, there could be an impact and maybe let me talk to everyone involved before making any action to talk about what feelings does this bring up? How can we set ourselves up for success here? Is this the right choice? You know, what is everyone afraid of? Things like that. Um, So I do tend to encourage folks to think about those things. For myself and like my own choices within relatively small dating pools, I think now that I've I've had a lot of experience with this that I I think I would like to believe have kind of accepted that a little bit of this comes with the territory. And so what that means is I need to be on better behavior more often than maybe I would be in a more traditional dating uh, community. And what I mean by that is I maybe need to be more in integrity in what I tell people, how I treat people whether or not I choose to just like ghost someone, you know, it doesn't mean that I can completely insulate someone from hurt feelings or if we're mismatched or things like that. It doesn't mean that, but I do know that it's just like my actions are going to have more of a ripple effect on more people. And so for me, it means just trying to be more conscious of that to the best of my ability.
1: Something that came up when you were mentioning that I just want to say real quick is that I think oftentimes, especially when people are, new to non-monogamy or maybe just newly getting comfortable with it, there's this thing of, oh, I've kind of risen above all of the normal relationship concerns. And so whatever I can do to anyone, there's no concerns about it. And so I I think your point about just at least acknowledging this could have some impact and perhaps some some negative consequences around and being aware of that and not just saying, oh, well, now I logically get the concepts of polyamory, so none of this affects me. It's kind of like what we were talking about in the first half about the social impact does impact us, even if we're like, I I now disagree with it, we still have that impact of it. So it's just, I guess, to caution people to not think that, oh, well, now I understand the idea, so I've just risen above it all, and you can't tell me who I can and can't date, or, oh, if it affects you, that's your problem. But that's not really how the world works and how humans work.
3: Jay Estetiker and I were a part of uh, a community in Santa Monica that dated each other a lot in I our early, I guess Dedeker in my mid-20s. A lot of crossover, and, my God, in yeah, that community. And actually I'm I'm with I live with a person who I met from that community. And when I was starting to date him and starting to decouple with Jace, Jace was also dating someone from that community. And I think it did affect the way that she viewed me. Um just because, yeah, there was entwinement and, you know, things we're breaking up, and so I think her view of me really shifted in, in a negative way, even though that necessarily wasn't what needed to happen, but just because there were ideas and expectations and things like that, it, it landed in this, uh, I guess, sort of idea that I was not a good person or breaking up a relationship or something like that, and that's yeah. kind of unfortunate, but I think that those things can happen. Um, just by nature of being so entwined with a, a community at large. It's hard to create like a game plan for every single thing that may or may not happen. But if you do sort of come in with expectations between yourself and your partners about, like Dedeker said, what is going to happen if I start dating your sister or your friend or your metamor or something like that, is that totally off limits or not? It's kind of nice to just at least have an idea of that beforehand so that it doesn't just completely blindside you if you do get in a situation like that.
0: You know, when we when I listen to you guys talk, I I kind of wonder if we, you know, people hate the idea of veto power. And I almost feel like do we need a new word that means something slightly different? Like, mm. what if you have a partner and they start dating someone that you found out has been me too by mm. 15 people in the community? What if you're dating it a happens. partner? You know, like like something like that. And maybe you don't, maybe you heavily say, I am not comfortable. I love you. I don't want to walk away from you. We share a house and children and and a mortgage and all these things. I don't want to just walk out but I am not comfortable with this person. You know, I mean, we have a tendency to say. I hear people say veto power is always bad and wrong. But sometimes things like this happen, and is that really horrible to set a boundary when
2: that person is going to end up
0: impacting you
2: and and your loved ones?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, even entertaining that makes people like so uncomfortable, as I'm sure you've experienced. There's, no I, answer, I know, though. and. Yeah, and so maybe there needs to be different
0: language and maybe, I I don't know. Yeah, I know that even me bringing that up, you know, people would get super upset. But let's face it, there are situations where you might have a partner that is dating somebody, Yeah, you know, and there's times that we're really connected to our partner, you know, like you are married for 20 years and it's not one of those things where you can just be like, well, you're doing something I don't like, so I'm just going to walk away and it becomes more difficult than that.
1: Right, that's true absolutely it, it is like such a, a
2: i don't know like a gut check like a hmm, what oh if we God. just take veto and then put a different letter on at the beginning of it we oh <laughs> yeah I, I, I think, yeah
0: yeah i think this I word veto. i mean if you think about it it, it almost sounds like this judge this evil yeah, judge yeah. coming right. down and being like no yeah. you know yeah. i think i think there needs to be i've re- <laughs> revisiting that and a different term that is uh more gentle.
1: Hmm. Right. And and it's, I think that often we're trying to find the easy answer and it's, oh, well, someone controlling what I can do is bad. So therefore the total opposite of that is good. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, no, actually the truth is probably somewhere in the middle where we do want to accept influence from the people we care about in our lives, not just letting them dictate everything for us, but it also doesn't mean do whatever you want. They just have to deal with it. Right. And it's, we yes. often want the easy answer, which is to go to an extreme, and actually, it's it's somewhere in the middle.
0: Yes, yes. Which revisits what we were talking about earlier, which is you know sometimes the non certain factions of the non monogamous community sometimes have gotten just as rigid as yeah. some conservative yeah. monogamous people, and if yep. is the is the aim to actually be more flexible and and what is actually healthy.
2: Yeah, definitely yeah, love that.
3: All right, let's move on to another question. And I actually have an answer for this one immediately. So do you all have stories of metas you started off on the wrong foot with but ended up being super close to? Now, Dedeker, I wouldn't say I started off on the wrong foot with you at all. It's just that I did have like kind of a preconceived notion about you when we went out with that other person that we described earlier and Jason (laughs) and I went out and y'all were like talking about wine and cheese and being all esoteric and stuff and and i was like damn this, this I was just chick like too is too classy
2: for you is that yeah, what you're saying i think
3: that was it or at least yeah it was exacerbated by the other person as well i think and i was kind of like huh um i don't know if i'll necessarily vibe with this person and then i guess did we go out on sort of a date or sort of a When you kissed me, I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was much later. That wasn't like the next step in the process. It wasn't wasn't like the next day. That's true. Yeah. I I would say we probably started off on a weird foot, a combination of lack of experience and also having the relationship kind of brokered by the fact that like, you know, we had two people we were dating in common, but hadn't Mm -hmm. really met each other yet or gotten to know each other. Like it took a little while for sure. Um and yeah. then here we are, eight years later, like as business yeah, partners. So as business <laughs> yeah. partners
3: and like best friends. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, I don't know. It just goes to show. Yeah, potentially your initial idea of a person will change, and one hundred percent. And it's easy to, I think, have a lot of feelings attached to, um, somebody that's dating somebody that you're dating. I mean, especially if that's a challenge for you in any way. So, yeah, it's good to maybe come in with an open mind if you can and try to meet with that person on some level because seeing a person in in person or, uh, you know, writing them or something, like making them a person as opposed to just an idea is really
2: helpful. Yeah, I would say even with metas where we've definitely started out on the wrong foot, Usually it's never been necessarily something that the meta did or said directly to me. It's always been filtered through the partner. And that's often where things have gone haywire is when the partner in between becomes like the telephone wire. Things get weird and garbled. And that's not to say that that means that's always the case. But I know in my personal experience, that's often been the case that even with someone that I didn't really like, didn't get along very well with. I felt like they were a little bit antagonistic toward me anytime I actually made the space to sit down with them one-on-one or just open up even like the short window of time where like for a couple hours, we're going to sit and have tea and I'm just going to talk to you like you're a normal human being and just get to know you or just hear your thoughts on this situation or things like that. I've always walked away feeling better about that. Maybe we don't go on to become super close friends or best friends, but at least I've walked away feeling more positively about this human. And I think that's been the experience that I've had is that metamors, especially before you've actually met someone in person, can really be like a blank slate for you to project everything you want to onto them. And for your brain, you know, especially your trauma brain to really cherry pick the most upsetting things or uncomfortable things about this particular person to start creating these narratives about ooh, they must be this kind of person or they must act in this particular way. Um, And so when you actually give yourself an opportunity to see someone as a more um, whole human being, I found in my experience, often it ends up being very positive. Again, that's not everybody's experience, but I know that's been the case for me.
0: I I think for me, I've had it go both ways. I think one of the more extreme examples was when uh, my now ex-husband, I was with him for 13 years, when we first switched from being swingers to starting to migrate towards poly. So for a while, we were in that in-between where we started to play separately. And he was the one who kind of introduced it. And he could be kind of a bull in a China shop. And that's what I loved about him. And that's what was painful about him. But he just one day, he said, I'm going to start a photography vi- business called Dirty Dolly Photography. And I'm going to travel across the United States. And I'm going to be gone half of every month. And my girlfriend and my makeup artist is going to be, I'll call her Debbie. Uh, and she's, you know, and, and we're going to be Polly. Like, he, I was kind of told And Mm. so I was kind of blindsided and it wasn't anything about her. It was just, I was just blindsided. And so at first she was scary, but Mm. she ended up being my best, one of my best friends for years, just, you know, just like, and, and a lot of that had to do with him that, cause although he was a bit of a bull in a China shop, one thing that I can say that was good about him is he would always pick lovers that were just the whole bag of chips, like beautiful, kind, respectful, sweet, charming, everything. And he would also kind of, uh, how should I put it, always say you have, you know, it's a, requ- it's I I don't know if this sounds bad, but it's a requirement that you're kind to my wife. If you're not kind to my wife, this is not going to work. And he would like circle whenever he need to come back to that, he always would. And so I just literally for 13 years, never had a problem with any of these women. If I got mad, I was mad at him for something, not because (laughs) because he just chose kind people. And it wasn't, I had been non-monogamous for, you know, over a decade when I had a two-year relationship with this other guy. And all of a sudden, for the first time, some women, some of his metamors were being mean to me. And I was blindsided because here I was, I've been a therapist, you know, with non-monogamous clients i've been doing this forever and for the first time i'm experiencing people being disrespectful and mean and i found a lot of that had to do with how he was as the hinge how Mm -hmm. he was talking to both of us he was basically just saying whatever made both of us happy and he was really textbook yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) And he was just creating the shitstorm and not not create yeah, it was like the telephone game. Yeah, it was it was all bad. But I was really blindsided by that because I just wasn't used to it. I'd had such a good experience for so long. So I feel like
2: yeah. I don't know if if you've noticed this in your practice. I, I feel like this is something that I've I've noticed more frequently as a meta pattern, I suppose, but sometimes I, I think that I've seen more women be more likely to Project some of those issues onto the other female metamorph, as opposed to examining: Oh, is there actually behavior of my partner in between us that, mm. that's doing something? I know I definitely kind of fell into that trap. Um, is that a pattern that you've seen with that some people are more likely to fall into than others, or does it feel like that happens across the board?
0: Um, you know, I I, I haven't really noticed that pattern, but we're all in our kind of little feedback loop bubble where we all see certain patterns, and and other people don't. Um, sure. You know, I I haven't seen that pattern, but, you know, um, yeah, I've seen just as many people of other genders do that or not do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Yeah.
1: Uh, Let's move on to our last question for the day. So to give you a little bit of context, a few episodes ago, we did an episode about being in the same space time with multiple partners, where basically you're the V and you have multiple of your partners at the same event or at the same thing like a birthday or a, or a party or something like that and kind of how to to manage that as the v right as as the hinge in that v of you know how to deal with having multiple partners together in a way that feels good so the question here is in episode 369 it was discussed on how to be a good v hinge in most of the conversation but how how are you a good meta? Is it any of the meta's responsibility to also navigate the relationship as best as possible? And again, for context, meaning at the same event, like where you're in the same space with your metamore. Uh, this says also, what happens when maybe one is a nesting partner and the other is a long-distance partner? We talked about that a little bit on that episode. Uh, and then affection in the same space is different as the nesting partners live together and see each other every day, but the long-distance partner may not get to see them as often, how do you navigate that dynamic between the metamors themselves, between the nesting partner and the long-distance partner, for example?
0: I mean, for, for me, I'll, I'll have to say that, you know, just as I was saying, we're all in our little bubble. Uh, it, for me, a lot of times what I, what I hear, or a lot of times I'll have a couple that I'm working with, and regardless of what's going on at home, Uh, a lot of times one or both people are avoidant at even talking to the other metamors. And I always say to them, I'm like, I know that it feels uncomfortable to you. You don't have to be best friends. But even if you just have a little Zoom call or something where you just say, the door is open, if anything bothers you, please talk to me, you know, that will head off so many difficulties because what a lot of my clients do instead is they... Resist that and they wait until the two, you know, metamors are really, um, you know, have a lot of misinformation, are super pissed at each other. And the first time they have a conversation is at that escalated place. Mm. That's what I usually see. So I'm not, a lot of my clients are not like the kitchen table poly folks. Uh, you know, it's, it's more of a dynamic like that where the metamors a lot of times have never even had a conversation with each other. And I'm always, trying to get them to at least say, you know, an email, anything that just says, if anything is ever bothering you, please reach out. The door is always open. I always want you to feel safe to talk to me. It's okay if you get upset. If I do something and it upsets you, or you don't feel like I'm being considerate, let me know. I have my big girl pants or my big boy pants on. And I, you know, I'm here for you to hear any of that. And a lot of people don't do that. It can be a very simple thing that is a massive
2: game changer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I think what's helpful in thinking about this, I know Jace always likes to compare metamore relationships to in-law relationships. And it's not necessarily a perfect metaphor, but it does, I think, help to frame it when thinking about different social situations where we don't have a script. And so if we reframe it as, How much of a responsibility do you have to create some kind of good or functioning connection with your in-laws? And those kind of expectations can be different for different people. And so I feel like first step is having conversations about that, right? You know, again, if we're running with the in-law metaphor, you may be assuming, oh, whatever, my partner deals with all that. I don't have an interest in their parents. Like, whatever, if he wants me to be there, he'll be there. While your partner's parents may be like, no we were reaching out we want them to reach out we want to connect we want to get to know them you know and so I think some investigation first and foremost instead of just kind of assuming that everyone wants the same type of relationship that you think that you want um but I think ultimately it comes down to like your responsibility is not zero in this situation um I mean, sure, if we're getting into a relationship where everyone's on board with really wanting it to be parallel and and we're on the same page about that, that's different. But if we're functioning in some kind of version, somewhere on the spectrum of kitchen table or garden party polyamory or whatever you want to call it, like, I, th- I, I think, my opinion, that you do have at least a little bit of a responsibility to, I think, like Kate was saying, like, open up that channel, even if it's just a little bit, you know, and expending at least a little bit of that goodwill. Um, So that it's not 100% on just your partner in common to be brokering that relationship and making sure that everything's okay.
3: In terms of being in a same similar space together a party, I just think about when I had multiple partners at a party in that space that I talked about earlier when we were first opening up and being polyamorous and how I, I tried to be exploratory with sort of everyone at the party in terms of meeting new people trying to learn about them and that that might I might make my way over to a metamore and do the same thing so that you know when you meet new people at a party it's it's interest it's learning it's you know putting your best foot forward it's a lot of like fun exciting i guess conversations that you're having potentially with people And if there's a way in which, even though this might be sort of an emotionally charged situation, because you know that this person is also dating your partner, if you can come into that situation with a little bit of excitement and let's figure out what I can learn about this person, um, you know, without placing too much intensity on your hinge or on, you know, what things you might. I guess explore with uh your metamor anything like that like it's just I guess like throw it away a bit like just have fun I don't know that's (laughs) it those were the times that I had best where I just kind of came into a party situation or a situation with multiple people um just by sort of knowing like whatever happens happens and we can have our expectations beforehand and talk about things but also I I just want to Sort of get to know this person and get to know the other people around me. I
1: think one other thing that I would add to this as I'm kind of, as you're all talking, trying to think through my different experiences with this and how it's gone, I found that for me, one of the things that factors into it is one, I'm not there to be like, you have to be my best friend. I'm like really going to keep bugging you, but I want to feel approachable and, uh, you know, clearly not your opponent. Here is sort of what I'm going for, and what I found is that gender and sexuality dynamics play into that a fair amount, at least at least they do in the way that I think about them. And so, for example, if it's a male metamorph and we're both dating a female partner, and assuming you know that he's coming from that social conditioning, uh, I'm going to come in with this. I want to be friendly and polite. And to try to very clearly represent that I'm not posturing, like kind of come in with sort of a, a humility, I guess, or just a, Hey, good to see you, you know, kind of a put on a little extra warmth to be clear that like, I'm not going to try to do this. Like, Oh, I'm gonna try to outdo you. You gotta, you know, try to try to impress her. Cause I'm going to try to show how I'm better than you. Like these behaviors that straight men are kind of socialized to do versus if it's a metamor who is a female partner of a female partner of mine, my approach is going to come in with more of this like, hey, I want to be clear and polite and also not pay too much attention to you because I don't want you to think that I just want to hook up with both of you. Like that that's not my only interest here. Um, I mean, you know, if we're all interested in that, cool, but I don't want Mm -hmm. that to be your first assumption because that's what a lot of people are going to assume a man who's dating a woman's going to want. Right. So for me, it's often trying to go against those, you know, or if it's another male partner of a male partner of mine, I'm going to have a a slightly different approach there of, again, trying to be, you know, uh, friendly and approachable and kind of try to to illustrate how I do and don't fit into the mold they might be assuming I fit into. So anyway, just just to throw that in and complicate it a little bit that I think there's other kind of gender dynamics and sexuality that can play into it too, because like acknowledging people are going to come in with certain if not assumptions, at least fears about what you might be because of how they're socialized and you're socialized to think about those relationships.
2: So to complicate it even further, this person did ask, okay, if I'm in the space same space as my metamor, let's say it's the same event, but if my metamor is like a nesting partner who gets to see my partner all the time and I'm long distance and this is just a visit and I don't get to see them all the time. You know, how do we manage that, like, without making anybody feel like they're left out or not getting the same amount of affection and things like that? Um, I think at first blush, I mean, my impression is that a lot of the same advice applies, which is just to, like, talk about this shit for, like, six months ahead of time if you can you <laughs> don't know, put it like, off till the event yeah. i know kathy labriola famously is like start making your polyamorous christmas plans in july please mm. um you know like <laughs> especially if this is your first time managing this stuff like sometimes you need a long on-ramp for being able to examine all the feelings that come up and the concerns that come up and the fears that come up i think that's my my first take on this what do y'all think
0: you know i largely 90% I I say yes, but I, you know, obviously there's some individual differences. Like there's some people that are dating and they've been doing this for a long time and they have really high emotional intelligence and they can just read each other with hardly any words said and they can just, you know, have a conversation, you know, not too long before an event and it can go well, just because that's how... Evolved they are in terms of their emotional intelligence and ability to read micro expressions and their empathy and compassion. There's other folks that have a hard time reading facial expressions. They misread things. They forget a relationship agreements. Uh, maybe they sometimes struggle with a little bit of narcissism or self-entitlement, blah, blah, blah. And they, you know, and maybe they're dating an overgiver that, you know, caters too much, you know. Yes, they need to have a conversation. A million conversations leading up to to this, and and um, you know, so so the the, I guess, the more you're you're lacking an attunement, the more you need to have conversations, and the more you need to have conversations early on. If you're just completely attuned, then, as much you know, you might not need as much front loading. Hmm. Depends. Yeah, that makes
2: sense.
1: I think to ask this question that the question asker is asking specifically about, you know, if you're the long distance partner and the other ones, the nesting partner um, that I know it just sounds so simple, but to just express that directly to the metamor rather than going through the, the hinge partner between you. And an example that I'm thinking of is a time when I was in Japan with Dedeker and coordinated with her other partner for him to come and surprise her for her birthday in Japan. and so like I helped him, you know figure out how to navigate the the metro system and stuff like that. And you know, I was talking to him about, oh, you know, I have this idea for this plan. We can all go to the Studio Ghibli museum and you know, maybe do these other things. And he did respond with a, you know, yeah, that sounds cool. I also haven't gotten to see her very much in a while, and so I, I would like to be sure that I have more time, you know, just with her that we're not just doing everything all the three of us together. And for me, you know, he was just very direct about it. Uh, honestly, I don't know if I could have been that direct in the same situation, but I actually really appreciated hearing it because it made it very easy for me then to respond of, "Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that plan and, you know, maybe we'll have a dinner at some point, but other than that, yeah, you guys do your thing and and no worries because I'm, you know, I still get to see her after you leave." So just even directly communicating about it can be really helpful because Hopefully, your metamor does want things to go nicely for you, and if they are the nesting partner or the one who's around more at least, and you're not, they get that too and aren't out to get you.
0: Yeah, and right. I just want to underline what you're saying, because if your listeners are anything like a lot of my clients, what their their little conversation in their head goes something like this, but I'm not ready to do that, or... They're having a bad day, or I'm having a good day, and I don't want to ruin my good day having this conversation. There's some reason they can't do that right now, and I would just say, "No, really, no, really." (laughs) Talk directly to the metamorph. You know, so often there's this telephone game going on, and it just gets so distorted. And there's so much pain that could be avoided Mm. if you if you um, just but you know have that conversation even though it's so hard for so many people
2: yeah i I like the idea of ending out this episode and maybe all episodes in the future from now on with just hey no really though no (laughs) no really no really though (laughs) no really (laughs) kate i feel so lucky that we've gotten to have you join us for this q a episode thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your advice can you tell us where people can find more of you and your work?
0: Uh, my website is just KateLarie.com. L-O-R-E-E is the last name. Uh, mostly, you can find me on Instagram at Open Deeply with Kate Lurie. Uh My TikTok handle is the same. With Twitter and Facebook, if you just put Kate Larie, I'll pop up. <laughs> uh, I do have a podcast, Open Deeply. Um, lately, I haven't been doing it every two weeks because I've been so busy with the book and all of that. But, um, you know... The, I do have a podcast with Sunny Megatron. That's another place you can uh, check me
2: out. Excellent. And if you're listening and you want to submit a question, you can do that by joining our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash multi And we want to hear from you. So our question this week that's going to be on our Instagram stories, would you answer any of these questions differently? Is there any of this advice you disagree with? Anything that you would add that would help the people asking these questions, you can find that in our Instagram stories. The best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. Again, you can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multi-Amory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinetta. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on MultiAmory.com.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.